All right. right. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am Johnny DeSantin. We have Reginald Perryman, Shaka Williams. We are Tassari, and this is There's Something About Real Estate podcast where we talk all things real estate. And we have with us today special guests, Eugene Kelly and Ken Scott. So, so Gene, can you tell us, like, explain what exactly is the Detroit Land Bank? Yes. Um, the Detroit Land Bank is a it's a organization in Detroit. It's an affiliate that uh, basically holds a bundle of homes or prop. I'm sorry, properties. All right. You have um, it's a it's a separate entity. It's, it's city run. It's run by uh, various boards and it answers to city council ultimately. And it's basically like a holding spot space for uh, for properties. They uh, they have uh, commercial, residential, vacant land, and some bundles. And oftentimes, as you as you know, the uh, city of Detroit does not have uh, a lot of contiguous property. So oftentimes, properties are you know taken either through Wayne County tax foreclosure or or anything like that, and they're put into that land bank to be dispersed. Uh, for various projects or sold at different entities. And that's how, that's just a clearinghouse for properties to either been uh, given for development and what have you. So basically, so there's a Detroit land bank and then there's a county land bank, correct? Yes. So basically what you're looking at is just, uh, again, I can't, the assumption would be is that it's just different jurisdictions. Okay. So you, you have your, so hypothetically, let's assume you have a state land bank where you saw the, and that's a different bureaucracy that's handling that reports to different people. So and then it goes to your county land banks, which is a larger uh, jurisdiction, and down to your city land banks. Uh, so Detroit has a large, you know, land bank, and um, and that is that as of last year when we joined, they had ninety six thousand parcels, and so that's uh, vacant land, commercial, residential, and uh, dilapidated properties. So. So I believe it's the largest bundle of properties, or one of the largest pro- bundles of properties in the state. All right. Okay. So how did, how does a property um, become part of the land bank? How does that happen? Well, typically, it's uh, the um, the land bank. The property it sits on uh, the, the Wayne County tax. You know, well, usually sits as a tax foreclosure, right? And uh, the and if it sits as a, as a tax foreclosure, Oakland, Wayne, what have you, and it sits and oftentimes it's gone to auction. Typically, the properties that go to auction and they are taken off, they're bought by the regular consumer or the government or bought back by the cities or what have you. And if they're bought back, then they go off the rolls. Well, there's always those delinquent individual properties that just sit, sit, sit. They roll over from the spring, they roll over to the fall, and they just keep going and going and going, and nobody wants to bother with them. Well, over time, these properties are accruing taxes and they're just blighted and they need somewhere to be going and they're not getting any, uh, collecting any tax revenue. So the, the land bank will take them over and, or, and, and, and grab them and put them in their, their bundle. Um, there's also properties, let's say, for example, if there's a major development going, going to happen and the city, city needs to acquire a, a swath of land for something like, i.e. An, um, a extension to a city airport or Amazon is coming to town or something like that, they may take those properties by eminent domain and put them into the land bank uh, pile and, and prepare them for sale or, mm-hmm. or distribution to another entity. So oftentimes it's the delinquent uh, Wayne County properties and the, the biggest blighted properties that end up in the land bank first. 
Well, I got a question. So yes, you said sir. something about the eminent domain. Mm -hmm. So they they take they can take property that's not necessarily dilapidated or in in a tax foreclosure uh, using that. Any, right? any any government agency has that opportunity, whether it's the land bank or the county or such. That's that remains to be seen. But as you know, the the definition of eminent domain is basically when a uh, a government entity basically says, I, "I'm taking your property." Oftentimes they will. They probably will compensate you for it because oftentimes, you know, they usually by way of easement, it might be because you have to put a uh, a roadway through or a utility line in or something like that. So it's really not a bad. Well, typically not a bad thing. But again, for those that know your history, you know, that's how we lost <laughs> Black, uh, Black Bottom and other parts of the city. In Paradise of, well, Valley. In Paradise yeah. Valley. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. I.E. I-75. <laughs> and, and 375. Exactly. In right. 96. Right. <laughs> Yeah. So how how does somebody um, purchase a land bank property and what like what are some of the programs? OK, OK. Land bank, uh, if you go to their website and again, I'm I'm versed in one uh, part of the land bank, but there are four ways typically to buy the properties. They have the auction, which is what everybody knows. You go online. I believe it's a daily or weekly auction and you can go on there and you can look at what the, what the offerings are. Oftentimes you have to make an appointment to see them or they might have open houses for those properties and you bid on them just like uh, eBay or what have you or any any uh, tax sale auctions. You go on there and you say, OK, the dollars, I think the bid started a thousand dollars and they go up, they go for a certain amount of time and they could go up to as high as ten or twenty thousand dollars. But once whoever wins the bid wins the bid, there's also rehabbed and ready. The rehabbed and ready is basically a situation where these dilapidated homes are uh, fixed up and resold on the open market, either through realtors or through the auction. Um, and then there's the Own It Now program where the same type of auction properties are out there where, and they just give you a, just a general bid. Okay, bid this, you got it. And so that's the case. That's for that particular case. As far as what I do, there's that fourth piece that you don't see on their website where you see it, but it's always at the bottom, but the other three are more popular. We're the listed or brokerage properties where the properties are actually gone out and the land bank has contracted various realtors to put them on the multiple listing service and advertise them for sale. And we as the uh, brokers have the option, you know, we have the opportunity to show these at will, write the offers for them and communicate directly to the land bank. So we are the liaison in the direct communication between the buyer and the Detroit land bank. So it's typically, it's like a typical real estate transaction because I am the, the, the conduit between the Detroit land bank and the consumer. And I believe right now, as it stands, there's about five of us that uh, brokers, there were three and, there, and they added two more. But I think there's five of us real estate brokers in the area that are Detroit land bank brokers. Myself, Real Estate One, Natasha Richards at Bella B Realty, uh, Leonard Pickett and crew at RCH, uh, Jeff, uh, Buffalino, and then I believe it's uh, Summit Realty as well. So, um, and I know they're looking for more, but again, they haven't put out another RFQ. So that is a good opportunity for realtors to jump, jump in. So at least I'm glad that they are starting to use realtors because again, they're overwhelmed because they have again, 96,000 parcels or more uh, available that need to be moved. So, so that process, you said it's like a typical um, uh, real estate transaction, but it's a little bit longer. You should expect a little bit longer wait. Yes, definitely. So basically <clears throat> when you do a typical real estate transaction, you look the property up, you see it online or on Zillow or Redfin or something like that and say, hey, this property ABC is for sale for $10,000. And then you contact that agent and say, okay, here's your $10,000. You write up a purchase agreement, buyer seller agrees to it, you write it up and you close. That is a typical real estate transaction. However, 
that is not necessarily the case here. The land bank has various guidelines depending on the type of home that you're going to buy. Yes, you will contact me to see the property. An agent will be able to go into the MLS and do, and do a search and say, hey, I'll make an appointment to see said property. But that's where it kind of stops. That's where it becomes an actual um, different type of situation. What the land bank wants you to do, they want you to write a performa, okay? And they want you to basically qualify for said property. They want you to make sure that, because these properties are, unfortunately, the worst of the worst, okay? If, if I told you before the... Uh, you got the auction, the owning now, and the others. Those properties that are in those bundles are pretty much a lot in better shape, more you know, readily available. The properties that we have are probably not not the greatest, and they're going to require the most amount of work and the most sophisticated type of real, uh, sorry, investor to purchase them. So they're going to make sure, depending on the property, that there's certain guidelines that they want you to jump through in order to get them. So what they want you to do is uh, they ask you several questions. So let's say, for example, if you were to buy a property that was a residential pro residential property. Well, what they want you to do is the following. Number one, provide a brief statement of who you are and why you want to purchase the property. Please also include a proposed purchase price, contact information for the buyer, a phone and email, and the name of the buyer or purchasing entity. They want to ask you, have you purchased any single family homes from the DLBA? They want to know what your estimated renovation costs and development timeline for your project is. They want a detailed scope of work if as helpful. How do you plan on financing the project? Please include the proof of funds for at least the equity portion of the development costs, in addition to pre-approval letters from lenders or construction or construction loans if applicable. Do you have any single family home renovation experience? If so, please provide a portfolio of past work that includes addresses of renovated homes and before and after renovation photographs. What are your plans upon completion of the construction? Do you plan on selling the property or renting the property? Will you be hiring a contractor to perform the renovation work? If so, the names of the contractors uh, and or companies you plan on using is helpful, including a Detroit, their Detroit experience and or experience with a similar product. We welcome, you are welcome to submit additional information that you think would be helpful when evaluating proposals, such as letters of support, references, commitment to Detroit, et cetera. So you really have to basically know what you're doing. You, uh, you liken that to a contractor writing up a job, a bid for a job. So if you are not said contract, they're expecting you to have contractors on hand because they want you to basically, when you buy this property, they want you to make sure that you have the money to buy it and the money to fix it up uh, on go, okay? They're not going to be waiting on you, you know, I'll just wait till the spring, I'll buy it in the winter, I'll wait till the spring to fix it up. No, they want you to be able to get ready, get started, and go forward. So it sounds property. like basically, so... And that varies depending on the type of properties they buy, whether it's a commercial or vacant land. There's just a few little nuances between the, the different types of property, but the basics are the same, correct? They need to know that you have some experience, that you have the purchase price in addition to the um, re renovation costs or development yes. costs, correct? Yes. Okay. okay. So when people ask you, they say like, oh, I've seen this property for $10,000. I got $10,000. That's not enough, correct? I mean, you have to have, you have to tell me more than you have $10,000. And basically, right. I, I get a lot of uh, investors from out of state, out of country, and or locals that say, hey, I'm ready to buy this house. I'll do, I'll do what I can. I actually explain to them, you have to qualify for this property, okay? You could have a million dollars, but if you don't know what you're doing, you're not going to get the property, Okay. The right. other thing, the other thing that they, people think is they can just buy this property and sit on it. You can't. 
what the what the land bank does, they ask you to they ask you specifically how long you think it's going to take you to fix this property up, and they want to hold you to that. And what they make you do is you may make you sign a, a reversionary clause or a, a reconveyance deed at closing, meaning that if you do not follow the guidelines and you and you don't do what you say you're going to do, the land bank is going to take the property back from you and all the equity that you might have put into it, you lose. So it is a very important thing that you know what you're doing and you know what uh, task you're taking on when you buy these properties. Yes, they are cheap. And the reason we mark them cheap is because we know the work that you have to go through. But the thing about it is that I also know, we also know that you're going to end up running into an issue or two uh, with this. You spend $3,000 on a property, you may find out you bid off more than you chew, you charge, you say, you know what, it's only three grand. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, walk it off. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to chalk it up to nothing. But see, that's the problem. We don't want to chalk it up. We don't want to get the property back. We, want, we don't want that property back in our, in our rotation, have to take it back from you. So we want to make sure we get it right the first time. So therefore, we're going to vet you out a little bit stronger. And you, be, you might get mad about it, but there's a method to our madness. So if, if I'm hearing you right, that, so that, that reversionary clause is in there um, typically is six months, right? So well, it, it varies. It varies. Yes. So, so basically, we ask you, um, you're going to tell us, because there's some properties that are bundles, right? It would be very okay. hard for me to assume that a, a house that's one house is going to take you six months and, I, and I, you bought two from me. So I shouldn't give you the same amount of time to fix up two as opposed to one. So when right. you're going to tell us, honestly, it may take you a year. Be honest. It may take you a year to get it done. And so we're expecting to do that. But let's say that you're working, working really hard. And it, you're, you're, you're short at that year period. We're going to extend you, okay? We don't tell you that off, up front, but we're going to extend you. We do not want the property back, okay? And so there's, a, there's an internal number that they have that where they'll extend it, but they're going to work with you because they don't want the property back. Now, there are certain things that happen where if six months go by and all you did was cut the grass, we're pulling the plug. But if you've actually gone through, you did the exterior, you did the roof, you did the plumbing and all that, you ran into an issue or a situation and you had some issues with electrical, but you didn't get all the windows in, you're still doing the final rough. We'll see that because we see before pictures and we see current pictures. We, we see how far you've got. And you're like, you know what? I need a couple more months. No problem. They'll give it to you. But you, the key is communication. But if you sit up here and six months go by and you're a ghost and nobody's heard from you, we got to track you down. That property's coming back. Right. So what I hear from you is that there are guidelines in place to, you know, make sure that people that are purchasing the homes that have to still be rehabbed, mm -hmm. um, that they're actually doing that. Now, when a person is going in to um, make the purchase, a lot of times you have a, a pre-warning there about a tax capture. And, mm -hmm. you know, it sounds pretty scary that the Detroit Land Bank can come back up to, I don't know. <laughs> Will you explain the tax capture? Sure, I could do that. Um, the Detroit Land Bank has a tax capture. And let's see. I can read it to you. Now, we're, I think I can find it. Uh, are you allowing us to share our screens? Yeah, let me set that up for you. Um, all right, you should be able to share now. Okay. All right. And while he's, oh, go ahead. All right. So 
what happens is that, and this is what we put, because I do a lot of these listings, I actually typed it up and, and put it somewhere where I can just copy and paste it. But these are the, this is the actual tax capture verbiage that we have to put in every, on every uh, property that we sell. It says, please note that the Detroit Land Bank Authority is entitled to a tax capture for the five tax years subsequent to transferring ownership of the property. The tax capture may be incompatible with tax abatements and lot combinations that are otherwise available to the selected purchaser. DLBA will review requests to waive its tax capture rights and may require a payment in lieu of taxes to approve such requests. The payment will be determined upon reviewing the development performer and effect of any tax abatements on the purchase and development financing. Please refer to DLB proposal guidelines. Now, you guys are uh, uh, savvy real estate people and you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, so, I don't. I'm scared. I don't no. want to buy a Detroit Land Bank property. Sounds like I'm gonna be responsible for something for five years. Exactly. So, so number one, let me tell you this. We are required to put that, that, that at the bottom of every listing we put out there, okay? Number two, here's the long and short of it, all right? These properties start off as Wayne County tax foreclosures, right? And they are sitting there all, you know, years and years and years go by. And as you know, any property that's on the Wayne County books is, is basically accruing taxes. And so those taxes have to be waived because the person that buys them, they're not paying those back, that back tax. They're just, they're buying at the auction. Well, long story short is that these properties sit there so long, they gotta be, they gotta be dealt with. Once these properties are taken over by the land bank, the land bank clears them off. They take all the taxes, all those taxes go to zero. Water bills, liens, everything. They put them at the title company. That's why they take so long for them to uh, get back to, you know, get, up, get these properties out ready for sale. And so when you buy a Detroit land bank property, you have, when, when you buy it and put it back on the books, that property has no taxes due. So if you look at that, you'll see zero when you see it listed. When that property is bought by an individual, it gets transferred back to the Wayne County books. And that's at that time, that's when the, uh, the uh, taxes start becoming accrued. Well, what we're saying and what this basically says is this, the land bank is, has the right to go back to the county for five years and say, I babysat this property for you for this amount of time. I'm entitled to some of those taxes that would have been accrued had you had that property in your care. And so in mm -hmm. essence, that is an accounting move between Wayne County and the Detroit Land Bank. It has nothing to do with your buyer. The only, so, the only way okay. it has anything to do with your buyer is if the, the person, if you were buying a big swath of land, you were doing a major development and you use the keyword tax, tax abatements, or tax credits as part of your financing. If you did not, if you did, all you were planning on doing is buying cash on cash, then you don't have to worry about any of that. Hmm. So basically so, for the general public, um, so basically the average person buying a 10, 15, $20,000 cash sale through the land bank, that doesn't even apply to them. So basically what I tell people is that after I explain it to them, when you start mm -hmm. seeing, after you see the description, when you get to the part that says, please note, just stop reading. <laughs> just, just, stop, just stop, stop reading. Don't even, don't even get yourself already worked up about it. We have right. to put this out there. And again, if you're going to, if the only way you have to worry about this is if you are doing a, a major development and part of your financing is a tax credit uh, or brownfield or tax abatement, something to do with taxes has to do with your, 
your um, your financing. And at that point, you're going to have an attorney and a, or an accountant that's going to walk you through that anyway. And so when they look at this, okay. they're like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. We're good. But the, the average Joe Blow or the more sophisticated investor, he's not going to be using the tax credits anyway. Okay. So, Shaka, you had a question. Right. No, he answered it. I mean, you was you were saying the same thing. Basically, uh, for the average individual purchasing that 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 uh that means nothing. Right. Yeah. Right. So with um so with the land bank. So when we're looking at these people buying these properties and going back to the revisionary clause and the deed, they they can't um they can't sell that property. Um, to somebody else, right? Because we're hearing a lot about the quick claim deed transfers and stuff like that. So you want, when you purchase, see, that's a thing too. Uh, quick claim deeds. You buy the property from the Detroit Land Bank on a quick claim deed. What is a quick claim deed? That is basically whatever interest I say I have is what I'm giving you. So that's what you're getting. However, as opposed to a regular quick claim deed that you get from somebody off the street, or you know, a father, son, or a mother, daughter type quick claim deed that you know you can trust. You, that quick claim deed that we give you from the land bank is actually uh, backed with title insurance. Title insurance is really your meat in this whole thing. You have a title policy saying that water is paid, taxes are up to date, uh, uh, any liens or anything like that. There's nobody coming after you. So the beauty of it is that you have the opportunity when you put that property up and bring it up to uh, speed and bring it up to code, you have the opportunity to resell that unencumbered on a warranty deed. So you will be able to convey, and that's the main issue that most investors and most people want to do. Can I move that property? Can I convey it out in the open market at market value without any issue or hindrance? And the answer to that is yes. So as opposed to buying a property off of the tax auction where you're, you're hit or miss, you have the full uh, authority from the Detroit Land Bank that even though you go through these hoops and, and hurdles, once you buy that property, once you get it up to speed, you can dispose of it or convey said property legally and honestly and equitably. Well, I used a bunch of big words all in a row. Okay. But, but there was two things in there. So, so you were saying, so one, you're saying, yes, you can sell that with, with no issues once you've- after, uh, after you fixed it up. Yeah, after, okay. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, so uh, no, legally, until you, you get that, um, that lien or what is it called? What are they placing on the property? They, it's, it is called a uh, reconveyance deed. Okay. Okay. So mm -hmm. until that is satisfied, that reconveyance or whatever is satisfied, then legally you, you can't sell it. So people need to be um, just use the title company. True. Just need to use Very true. Company. So so as opposed to so basically what you're saying is what happens in real estate. Oftentimes I've been licensed for 22 years and I know what I'm doing. You all know what you're doing. There are those fly by night realtors that are we call sometimes, well, I'm going to just say it out. Some wholesalers that basically just want to kind of kind of skirt the path and things like that. They buy a property. I'm sorry. They tie up a property for $5,000. And then they go to Jimmy, Jimmy Bob or something like that and say, yeah, hey, I got this property that I, I want to assign to you. And then they give it to somebody else for 10. And then next thing you know, that person finds an, uh, somebody else for 20. And then they find somebody out of state for 40. So then the guy that there's nobody that had any money. And at the end of the day, nobody did any work. And that same property was tied up for five and ends up being resold for 20. And everybody made money except the guy in the end. Mm -hmm. With land bank, they're not going to let you have that happen. Okay. Um, you cannot move a property that fast. You have to actually do something to said properties. This, that's, that's what they hold you to. You, once you buy it, that's your baby. You, you can't dump it. You can't get rid of it. You can't, 
You can't not claim it that you are the father. So you have to deal with that. So, so quick question. So if I'm if I'm Joe Smo off the street and somebody's selling me a property and I do a title search and I see that they, or even if I didn't do a title search, if they say they purchased this property from the land bank, I need to see that the land bank has removed their interest before I buy the property, correct? Well, there's two, well, if you're if you have your druthers, if the property is fully fully rehabbed and it has a certificate of occupancy, then more right. than likely, you know, you know, you can do that. You can do that part. If the house is raggedy and they say they bought it from the land bank and want to sell it to you, run, because they know you know right. they haven't they haven't gotten their revisionary interest back, mm-hmm. right? If they right. Sell, if if, if you see a house that looks brand new with everything and it looks like it's spick and span and, and ready to go, and they said they bought it from the land bank. There's a good shot. They probably got it together, and they, or they might be at the very end of getting their revisionary clause in place. But either way, you want to go to a title company, and a title company will tell you that, right? And the cool right. thing about the land bank, they use five different title companies. Hopefully, they were smart enough to go back to the title company they got it from, because that's where they go back to the original policy. Right, right. They can also um, show like their um, CFO, because with the land bank, you're required to get a CFO from trade, correct? What? Exactly, but see the thing about and if it, they if they if they if that um, lien is still on the property, they can that individual could probably have a release too by presenting the CFO because that's all the land bank wants is that certificate of occupancy on it that work was completed mm-hmm. to release that's that it. lien. Yeah. So the and so the interesting part about this is this the um the far as the revisionary reconveyance deed you sign you sign your the, your deed is conveyed to you at closing your quick claim deed. You sign the reconveyance deed at closing as well. So you're signing it back to the land bank the minute you buy it. So it's not about, if you know, going back and forth. Uh, hey, here's your, you know, I really didn't do this or that and the other. And once they determine that you have defaulted, they just file the deed. There's no, oh, I'm sorry, let me give me more time, what have you. Once you have gotten to the point where you're default, they just file the deed and it's gone. So that's the piece you have to understand uh, with that part is that it's, um, it's pretty straightforward with them. And, and the thing about it, you also have to understand what you're getting yourself into. You're not, this is not a speculative process. This is not a, just a simple, hey, this is my first time doing something. Let me just try this. This is not a try, try and error, trial and error. You need to be, at least at this level of property, uh, at, this, at these level of properties, you need to know, have a little bit of experience, at least get some very quickly. So it, it yeah, sounds so- like, be- oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it sounds like they, the only reason why they have that there is just to keep this up, to hold the individual accountable for the work. Exactly. That's their, yeah, it's just for accountability. So if you do what you're supposed to do, then that's not an issue. You know, because I just want people to kind of understand like, you know, yeah, it's there, but it's it's not hard to get that um, lien off the property. It's just the way that they hold you accountable and make sure you get it done. The the theory behind it is this. We've had there's 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 a lot of blight in the city of Detroit. There's whole areas of blight around, and there were properties that have sat for years and years and years. There's a there's a space, my father used to take me over there all the time, is Livernois and the Lodge, right there, where, which I barely, I believe was to, was damaged during the riots in 68, right? I wasn't born yet. And and I think that's the that area is just now become starting to get revitalized. That's almost that's over yeah. 40 something years, right? So basically with the with the with all this blight everywhere, they don't there's so much around 
they don't want to, co to contribute back to it. What happens is that there's various individuals that go, come out, there's in, investors from out of the state, out of the country, that'll buy up blocks and blocks of properties. It happened heavily during the, uh, the uh, foreclosure crisis, where uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac dumped you know, uh, non-performing assets onto the books, and some, some individuals got them, and they just basically started trading them back and forth and really didn't do any work to them. Well, mom, these mom-and-pop areas that you let, left you nice long troughs of blight everywhere, and nobody seemed to know who the owners of these properties were. And they found out these were foreign investors or out of state or out of country investors. So, and they didn't care. And so it ended up bringing the property values down in the general areas. It ended up bringing uh, despair and blight everywhere. Crime increased and a lot of different things that spiraled into what we call 2005 to 2010. So to avoid all of this, you know, or to put a handle on some of this, they put these rules in place so that it makes it a little bit harder, but a way to keep control of it so we can pull ourselves out of this blight infested mess we've gotten ourselves in, in the city of Detroit and other urban areas to make sure that we have an opportunity for number one, the people that actually deserve and believe and can get these properties and fix them up, have get into their hands and it controls the amount of blight and decreases the amount of blight over time in the general urban area. So that is the reason why they're doing it. So I get it. Of course, I'm on the inside looking out, but the but I get it. I understand why it's so hard. It's supposed to be. And you would get it too, if, especially if you're, if you're in an area where you've seen the blight and you don't think any, any help is coming. It's coming, but this is what has to happen. Yeah. It sounds like too, because when we hear, because um, we hear a lot of bad stories about the land bank. Oh, they trying to take my house back and all of that, right? Mm -hmm. But it sounds like from what you're saying, all they have to do is, first of all, they have to qualify to buy the home. Yes. And if they're staying in communication with the land bank and doing what they agreed to do, the land bank doesn't want to take the house back. No. So it sounds like a lot of those horror stories we're hearing is probably from people. They're either urban myths or from people that didn't really do what they were supposed to do. They're usually, they're usually urban myths from people that hadn't do what they're supposed to do. And they're also in our community, we have a lot of gossip. The people that are probably right. doing the most complaining don't even have never owned a land bank property, but they heard from Uncle Billy that talked to cousin Susie that had a best friend's <laughs> mother's uncles, father-in-law's sisters, baby mama's father's cousins, brother-in-law that, that knew somebody that on on Third Street that did something. And by the time you play that telephone game, the goes all the way back that whatever started off as this person did me wrong to they trying to have a big conspiracy theory that you know they they out to get me. Sure. It is what it is. Right. But listen to this scenario. Yes, so sir. a scenario where somebody purchased the property from the land bank. Mm -hmm. They quit claim the property to another individual, mm -hmm. the, so the, the, the homeowner, the new homeowner. Mm -hmm. Maybe uh, a year after they purchased it from land bank, you know, mm -hmm. right when they're, you know, and there's been no communication with land bank. So now this individual who purchased it on quit claim deed without, without going through a title company. Mm hmm is now about to lose their house because land bank is, tank, is taking their house. What is, can, can that person, do they have any uh, recourse at all? Like, will land bank work with that individual? They have tried in the past. That's actually, you're talking, I, I, is this the alley-oop question because of something that really happened, which I already know that's where you're going? Or I, I, no. I, can, give you the, I can give you the reason why it happened. No, it, it has never happened to me, but I'm saying those are some of the individuals who are, who you see on the news saying, hey, Land Bank is trying to take my, oh, yeah. my house. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Well, Go ahead. 
So there was a situation that happened um, with the uh, the lady, the um, the the home, the HGTV lady on that one house. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what happened is that what happened is that what uh, she um, she there was a property that was in question that that uh, apparently the people were losing the property. They were in the process of getting it lost. And the actuality is that the land bank said, okay, you have lost the property. All right, you're done. And so they quick claimed, that she, I don't know why she didn't do this, but they quick claimed the property over to her. She bought it, right? She didn't do a title search, but she's this big famous HGTV TV lady that, you know, <laughs> supposed to know better, but she didn't do a title search. Just saying, don't know. So then she bought it and then she got noticed that, hey, Land Bank owns this property. You no longer, you know, you, they're taking it back. You, you bought it from the wrong, you didn't buy it from the right owner. So then she filed, she got on TV and filed a big lawsuit, right? And said, you know, why la la, it's not yours. Now, before she got to that lawsuit and before she got to the point where she was, you know, on TV's crying foul and telling all the world, the Land Bank actually tried to work with her. They said, look, you know, I can't help you with the money that you that you lost from over here, but we'll give you the opportunity to buy this property from us and give you the real deed and all that sort of thing. That was lost in the sauce. Mm -hmm. And so what happened is that when it all was said and done, they didn't come to an agreement. She felt she was wrong. So she got, she was the loudest person on TV, right? Mm -hmm. So the land bank took it back and actually put it up for sale in February with one of our brokers. And so this thing dragged out, dragged out. And she actually lost her, her um, case twice, mm -hmm. all right? And so that's why she still cried foul. Now, here is the technical thing that happened. Did you guys end up finding out what happened with that at the end? I didn't no. know much about it. Mm -hmm. Okay. She ended up winning the case. She ended up getting the property back, even Did though she? she was declared twice that it was wrong. You want to know why? 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 <laughs> because, unfortunately, when, she, when the land bank took the property back, they didn't file the reconveyance deed in time oh, so yeah. her quick claim deed beat out the reconveyance deed mm, they caught it so they got caught on a technicality so even though they had, first to record exactly so that right. so, so even though she was wrong by default she won because she ended up being she, her deed went ahead of the reconveyance deed so and due to the pandemic things got backed up and behind and that's what happened wow but you, right. but to answer your question, the answer to the question was yes. They may, you know, in certain situations, they may work with you if it makes yes, sense. Yes, they 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 will. They again, they don't want to. Okay, this a lot of this stuff is political, right? Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, when when as part of you probably will ask me this later, but as part of part of this uh, this vetting process and the approval process, I think the final thing goes to the city council for final approval, right? It's a, usually it's a rubber stamp, but they have a say in this. And, you know, anybody can go to a city council meeting and anybody can say that nobody gave them the opportunity and this, that, and the third. And, you know, you got three to four billionaires working and everybody already, already assumes that, you know, the big boys with all the money are getting the best properties. I, can never, I cannot convey neither, whether true or not. But at the same time, there is an opportunity for the common person to get properties if you follow the protocols and the guidelines. But, of course, everybody has their conspiracy theories on those things, right? So... The land bank has gotten a, a bad rep from everybody, realtors included, but from the inside, I understand it now. Again, 96,000 properties. There's, there's not 96,000 people working at the land bank, right? 
Um, and there's only a few of us out here, you know, doing it. They got to keep track of these that's on the market and not on the market. And if you're blowing up their phones all day about asking about one or two properties, they can't do the work that they're paid to do down to the land bank. And we just got, we're just coming through a pandemic. So you also got, you know, uh, attrition changes and, and staffing and, you know, budgetary cuts because of the fact that, again, we're just coming through a pandemic. So you got a lot of different variables going around in this. And on top of that, publicity, good, bad, or otherwise. So, so can you touched on something too. How long does it take from the time you, how long does the purchase process take? And I'm, I'm talking about for the average everyday person buying, trying to buy a single family home, just kind of walk us through that process. I will preface, I will preface my answer like this. I have been with the land bank a little over a year. I'm going into my second year. And my, my beginning was at the beginning of the pandemic. So therefore, my orientation as Gene Kelly land bank agent started on a Thursday and the next day they closed the schools. So my, wow. my experience is fully through the pandemic. So okay. that being said, what is supposed to happen is that you submit, that you, you submit your uh, proposals to me. I package those proposals up and put them in a the proper format and I submit them to the land bank. The land bank will put a deadline on, a, on the popular properties. They'll put a deadline on when it, they're going to be done, uh, you know, when the, when the last highest and best will be available. And say so they might put that out there 30 to 60 days out because they want to make sure that the property has enough exposure, just like the foreclosures. They want to make sure that it's exposed long enough so that all the people have the right to see it and make sure they have, they have proper notice for the property. After that exposure period is up, they're supposed to go through and take the property through the various vetting entities. Now, it is not one person that takes looks and gives a rubber stamp to these, these things. What you're doing is that you're doing a proposal. So therefore, there's various teams that meet uh, either weekly, bi-weekly, bi-monthly, or what have you, or quarterly that basically review these things. They have teams that meet throughout the month that have to go through, and these property, these offers go through this amount of scrutiny per, per house. The more the offers, the more the scrutiny is, and the more they have to vet and do certain things with these properties. They Once they actually uh, get a person or get an offer they like, they will then send a purchase agreement to me, which I will send to the agent or to the person to fill out and sign. We'll give them a period of time to sign that said purchase agreement. Once they sign that purchase agreement, uh, uh, I will pin the property. Again, now we're looking at from the time that the house has been put on the market to the offer was submitted, we might be taking, talking about one and a half to two months, potentially, right? And this is all pandemic-based. After that property is signed and that earnest money is in, the, in then it goes to, uh, I think, final review, which, which would be, final review would be going in and getting it signed, by, signed off on and approved by a city council. Now, the city council it only meets once a month, and it's at the end of the month. So if I were to get that purchase agreement probably you know, on the first or the second of the month, It'll be in by, as long as it's in by, I think by the 16th, it'll be on that docket for that month to be signed off on. And then once it's actually signed and gotten back to me, it's assigned to a title company and we're looking at be, between 15 to 20 days from that point. But again, you got to get there. So the biggest weight that you have to deal with is initial offering and vetting process and getting the purchase agreement signed. But once you get to a purchase agreement position, you typically should be fast-tracked and ready to go. <clears throat> But again, this is all based, these are all pandemic-based numbers. 
So I don't know. I don't know what normal is because my normal is pandemic. Is that right. normal? <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be normal for a while. No, I'm. I'm just saying, like even before the pandemic, uh, when I purchased land bank properties, that uh, process was still a little bit. You know, once you buy the house, you're thinking that you're going to closing. You know, because it's a cash deal, mm-hmm. and it's just like you're sitting up waiting for a few weeks. And it's kind of like, okay, what's happening? And they don't really, you know, explain to you the inside details of like, you know, why it's taking so long. It's just more so like be patient. Right. Now, the good part about it, because they are, are reaching out to us realtors, we're getting the, we're getting the brunt of uh, the questions. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, you got to be patient with us because we don't know. We know. We know when we know. And so when people say, well, how long is it going to take? I don't know. It could be, it could take, you know. You know what? Anytime I do try to reach out to the land bank, I always get a pretty good response from them though. Or, you know, then they sign you like your caseworker or your district um, agent or whatever. They normally respond pretty well uh, directly. Mm -hmm. I did have a question though that we didn't get a chance to hit on. And it's, you know, you said that you list the properties on the MLS. Um, you're, You're one of the agents, you know, that have the opportunity to do that. And I was just wondering, like, you know, what are some of the pros? You know, why would I want to go down there and do that as an agent? Mm-hmm. Well, I joined the land bank, number one, as a real estate agent. You always want to be relevant, right? Um, I always tell this story to new agents all the time. My license number is 293908. That was my original license from 1999, right? What that means in the state of Michigan, there's a 293,907 other agents in the state of Michigan before me. So now the license numbers are like four something, 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 something. That means there's over 500,000 agents in the state of Michigan, all vying for the same stuff. And you got to be relevant. So the more information that you know about, this, about the market and everything like that, the more chances your phone is going to ring. So also what I've learned is that the Detroit Land Bank is a good amount of property that and we're in the deal of selling property. Now, is it the money that's getting there? You know, you got volume. Yes, if you sell properties, and there's always going to be somebody calling you because that's the hot topic right now, just like uh, foreclosures. The other thing, too, is that it gives me an insight, which I'm starting to learn here, is that as they start releasing various properties in various parts of the, of the city or the area, I usually see within four to six months something else larger coming, up, coming across, right? A lot of the properties I have for sale, I might be, they might give me maybe two or three properties, maybe a house and two vacant lots on one street. But then I look around on the area and I look across the street and I do some searching. The land bank owns across the street too. Land bank owns the rest of the block. So what happens is that they're te- they might be, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm assuming, they might be testing the market to see if that's a good development area. So they, so oftentimes I'm, I as an agent might be getting the heads up on what some stuff is coming down the road. So that's good information to have if you're trying to separate yourself from these other three or 400,000 agents in the area. Right. I might be able to push, you know, tell my investors, hey, this looks like crap. But guess what? Something might be coming because there's a method. I believe there's a method to their madness. They're not just releasing properties just randomly all over the place. There's some reason because I've got a property right now on McKay Street, uh, 13114 McKay. And I got one on 2087 McKay on Mead Street, which has a lot of um, vacant land with it. That's in the probably the higher end of near Hamtramck, right on the border. And as I went to go visit that property, I, and when I got to the end of the block, there's all these DTE trucks at the end of the block. 
putting in, you know, infrastructure. It's a whole blighted neighborhood, but you got a whole body, bunch of utility trucks putting in new stuff for some reason. I don't know why. But I, maybe we'll hear something in a couple of months of some major somebody coming to town. But here I am possibly at the beginning of said something coming to town as opposed to, you, you'll never know. It'd be like Nostradamus, six months from now. Hey, they're doing this big old, yep, I knew about it. Great. So it's all, that's, that's a good thing. It keeps your phone ringing. It keeps you in the know. You know it gets, helps you to strategize or help you to possibly see what's going on in the city and gives you a better idea of what actually is possible. So, gotcha. so your, con, your cons, uh, you have a, you know, it's, a, it's typically a certain, you know, you're, you'll, you'll get your regular commission, you'll get your percentage that we, you know, we asked for, but and you, you have, there are minimum commissions. That's a good thing. Um, so, but the thing about it, the wait time, the wait time, uh, yeah, you may be waiting a couple of months for your properties, but if you get into a groove, I say a pipeline, right? If you put enough properties in the pipeline, you'll always have something closing. You know, once we get out of this pandemic or once we get a little more handle of said pandemic, if you have enough properties going in, you got enough offers going in, you'll have enough offers coming out. So it's not going to be a hell of a lot of money, but it's going to be consistent work. You know, you always like to have consistent work. And again, you know, it's a, I, I just, I'm glutton for punishment. I like the, I like the stuff. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like the learning experience. I like the learning experience along with it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Oh, yeah. So and, your, and your other kinds, I guess, would be one of the things they make us do. They make us, uh, what is it? They make us log every phone call. Okay. So every time you, so if you call me about a property or Zillow, what have you, I have to log it and be able to track it, track that phone call. And at first it was kind of hard, but we, I figured out a, a system to do that. So I can keep control of it. I got a document that I use to uh, control that and it's pretty cool. So, um, and I think the other brokers have their own way to do things as well. Yeah. So it's I a lot of paperwork, but I'm good with it. All right. Okay. So we got um, quick things. So we, we are talking about land bank and acquiring the properties. And we are talking about, you know, a lot of people are looking for development and, what are some of the other benefits? And we got Ken Scott on the line who's been sitting by quiet. And we want to ask Ken some questions about like NEZ and some development. And I think Ken mentioned before about some areas that people should focus on. So Ken, can you tell us exactly what is the NEZ zoning and, and what does it stand for? Or how does it benefit um, individuals as well as developers? Absolutely. Um, the NEZ was started in 1999. Uh, it was basically an incentive to buy homes as a primary residence, meaning that you had to live in the home, you had to eat, sleep, and do whatever in the home. Uh, in doing so, you uh, had an opportunity to take advantage of a tax abatement as it relates to the property that you were buying. Um, the Abatement would lasted for 15 years. Uh, the, the way you would access the abatement is to go down to the assessor's office, make sure that you have the deed, make sure that you have $500 worth of work, whether it be uh, lawn uh, service or snow removal or whatever the case may be, or anything that you were to do to repair the home or renovate the home. Just state that you have that in a receipt form. And at the same time, uh, carry your driver's license, your ID, your, your deed, and what have you. Um, 
it is seldom used in some of the most desirable historic areas within the city of Detroit. Uh, it was based on 52 subdivisions of the city. Uh, most people think that it equates to communities, but it is subdivisions. Those subdivisions cross the line of various communities, uh, some of the most prominent communities and what have you. If you will allow me to share the screen, I can bring up some of those communities. Yeah, you can share your screen. Okay. Yeah. Can you all see that? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. You have communities like Arden Park, Barry Subdivision. And I'm going to give an example of Barry Subdivision because it was uh, very instrumental in getting the NEZ done. Uh, the Boston Edisons, the English Village, the Golf Club, the Sherwood Forests, the Green Acres, the Indian Village, the Palmer Woods, the Berg Lasher. I mean, most people equate it to, and the majority of the NEZs, Neighborhood Enterprise Zones, historic districts are, um, are I mean, excuse me, homestead districts are based between six mile and eight mile, John R. and Southfield. That's all within District 2 for the most part. Now, there are going to be some things that are uh, going to be addressed at the city council table, if they haven't already, where they're going to take some of those NEZs away from uh, District 2 and do a, uh, what do you call it, a, um, a redisbursement of some of the NEZs across the city of Detroit. Most of the NEZs are in District 2, District 1. Uh, District 4 and District 5. Now, there are three NEZs. Uh, one is the uh, Homestead District, which uh, you see before you right now in the 52 subdivisions. Uh, it's more, oh, I see it on the side. There's 52 subdivisions, and it's all the way across right. the city. But at the same time, uh, these are the Homestead Districts. The other two uh, districts are those homes or those developments that are newer uh, and those developments that need rehab. As it relates to the ones that are newer, you have to do that before you break ground. You cannot do that afterwards. And the reason being is I was a uh, real estate agent at uh, Washington Real Estate on Livernois uh, in 1999. We had most of the properties of, at that point in time, his name was Jerome, well, his name is Jerome Morgan. Uh, but at that time, his development was called Castle Construction. He also presently has a development uh, called Morgan Estates down by the river. Uh, if you've ever heard of Sandbar or something like that, uh, those are his developments. Uh, in 1999, people were buying in the Joseph Berry subdivision which is down um, uh, McClellan, uh, Dwight, um, what are the other ones? Uh, the names escape me, but at the same time, it's about a five block area down by the river and uh, including the Manugia Mansion, the home of the mayor. In doing right. so, when they were developing down there, they were building homes in the range of three hundred dollars to $500,000. Uh, somewhere after the development was done, 
they start receiving tax bills the following year. Uh, they went from a tax bill of somewhere around three thousand to four thousand to about twenty to twenty five thousand overnight. So there had to be some remedy involved, and um, our uh, former mayor uh, Kwame Kilpatrick, when he was in the leg state legislature, he was uh, over the Black Caucus of the uh, uh, House of Representatives, as well as uh, Virgil Smith who is one of our um, uh, senators, uh, was past senators and what have you, state representatives, they enacted the, uh, uh, they brought forth the um, neighborhood enterprise zone. Now the neighborhood enterprise zone states that 15% of the municipalities subdivisions can be utilized for neighborhood enterprise zone, whether it be the Homestead district or the new development or the rehab projects. Uh, a lot of the new projects have occurred, obviously downtown and midtown, but at the same time, that's the development. And there's a good portion that's not being utilized. That's where the city council is presently doing some reallocation of the NEZs, because like I stated, most of them were in district two. Um, there were several hearings uh, prior to uh, COVID, uh, where the communities that had NEZs and those that want the NEZ were petitioning the uh, Planning and Development Department to uh, allocate certain areas of their communities for the NEZ so they could spur some of the uh, um, uh, interest as well as uh, retain the present residents, but at the same time, also, once the uh, property was sold, they could instantly attract new residents and keep the areas viable. Uh, one thing that the NEZ does is keep, stabilizes the community, provides a tax break for those individuals that are purchasing, and at the same time, provide a tax base overall for the uh, communities uh, that are within these uh present subdivisions and the newly established subdivisions once the city council has uh, enacted those. You had a question? So let me ask you this. So the, the, the idea behind this was that, um, so people were getting these huge tax bills, right? Mm -hmm. So that was kind of making the higher end properties in Detroit unattractive when you compare them to living in the suburbs for the same yeah. price for lower property. So this kind of helped um, solve that problem by reducing the property taxes on those higher end properties, correct? Absolutely, okay. because the one thing you don't wanna do is lose your tax paying base. Right. And those individuals could have easily, easily sought being across eight mile, excuse me, eight mile telegraph, Kelly, the river, whatever the case may be in Southwest Detroit. So- What about, um, how does this benefit, like, not just the, the homeowners or develop? what about people that are buying properties to fix and flip? Is there any benefits to, um, to investors that are, is it any benefits to investors that are fixing and flipping properties? Initially, no, because it's primary homeownership only. Now, right. once we have acquired the property, renovated the property and what have you, and they sell it to a primary homeowner, that person can uh, take advantage of the NEZ. Okay. If you're doing right. development, 
and you're doing it solely for solely for the uh, developing of a specific area or renovating a certain community, then you can take advantage of it there as an incentive for people to purchase, mm -hmm. but not as a so, development. So they should apply for their if they're doing development. When should they apply? Uh, when they start or after the properties are completed? Before they break ground and before they start okay. having any project. Okay. All right. Yeah, because, uh, like I said, it's a means to stabilize the communities. Uh, it's a means to attract new people. As uh, time goes on, we have older and older residents, obviously. And uh, those older residents are moving out of the homes and what have you. When you look at the market in general, and a good example of the community is the Bagley community. At one point in time, uh, the architecture itself looks like University District or say New Martin Park. The architecture looks like University District, which is uh, either uh, with Bagley is to the west of uh, University District to uh, New Martin Park. It's to the south of uh, uh, University District. That architecture is the same. The only thing that differentiates it is the size of the home. But at the same right. time, when you buy properties in those areas and when you're rehabbing properties, uh, it's not the old mom and pop, grandma and grandpa house and everything with the paneling, with the wallpaper, with the shag carpet, whatever the case may be. Right. People are buying it as an investment in order to flip it to make sure that the property is contemporary looking and acceptable and attractable to attractive uh, to the uh, uh, individual that's buying it. It right. hence has done that in both communities and other communities, but more importantly, it when it's uh, done that and what have you, those people are uh, is uh, in within Bagley in Martin Park is experiencing a boom, basically because it's uh, actually caused the properties to appreciate greatly because of the comps in the area, because of the appraisals in the area. Uh, Bagley has gone from somewhere around 80, 85 or something like that, all the way up to 300 grand, depending right. on the style of home. And then again, in those areas, you also have multiple families that have been reconverted or converted into, uh, uh, into single family homes, which makes that home just as big as the ones in university district presently and can uh, uh, accommodate uh, families as well. Okay, so as an investor, back yeah. to what you were saying in regard, so as a, a developer, if you come in there as a developer, you need to apply for this NEZ, um, uh, what is it, uh, grant? Uh, well, you, you're, uh, you're buying it as an investment, you're breaking ground. If you're breaking ground, that's when you want to apply for the NEZ. Correct. In the homestead districts and what have you, it doesn't affect the homestead districts. Gotcha. What, what I'm saying that's though is- that, That's only because the person that's buying it as a primary residence will be able to take advantage of it. Correct. So if you're, if you're a flipper, you may, you're not, you don't have to apply for it. You don't have to do anything. If you're a flipper- You don't have to do anything. You can, yeah, you don't have you to can, do anything. Yeah, if you're breaking ground, say, in an area that is uh, not presently developed mm -hmm. and you want to develop housing or uh, housing units, 
then you apply for it then because you're breaking ground. That's considered a new construction uh, NEZ. Got you. When so, you're already so in a com uh, area such as the areas that's up on the screen, mm -hmm. you don't have to apply for it because that's going to be um, a, uh, uh, what do you call it, an incentive for those persons buying it as a primary residence. So to the flippers out there like ourselves, we do flip some houses because I never knew that. I never knew that that was something that we could uh, add or is a value add for us when we're flipping our properties is that this property is located in the NEZ uh, zone. Mm -hmm. So you have these um, tax abatements pretty much. Exactly. Uh, matter of fact, if I were to do some investment, I would use this strategy in order to uh, buy homes mm -hmm. so that my uh, uh, future buyer would be able to take advantage of this and you could use it as an incentive to sell the property. Correct. Uh, for wow. those uh, individuals that are outside the city that are with uh, some of the bigger brokers outside the city in the suburbs and what have you that are not knowledgeable enough about the area, they miss this whole point. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. Because this could be an incentive. Uh, sure enough, the home is an incentive. But at the same time, the tax abatement and now the insurance and now the college plans that are in these respective communities because of the uh, Detroit College uh, Fund and what have you, this mm -hmm. could be an ins these are incentives to buy in Detroit. Major, major incentives. They have looked elsewhere before. Right. So, so I, I see a lot of times some properties where they have like, It'll say like the NEZ uh, zone and it'll be like, I think it was like 15 years or something like that. It is 15 years. Okay. Uh, like I said, keep in mind that each municipality has 15% of their uh, parcels uh, where they can allocate it to the NEZ, whether okay. in the city of Detroit or suburbs or whatever the case may be they can allocate it specifically for that. But in the suburbs, there's no need because they have a steady migration. I wouldn't right. even bring it up because, uh, because of uh, certain advantages people perceive as being out in the suburbs and what have you, they don't need that incentive. Right. But in the city of Detroit, I mean, in these subdivisions where... Detroit can be different from block to block or community to community or a skip over a community and what have you. This may be the very incentive that attracts them and retains a residency and stabilizes the community as well as the tax base. Right. So, yeah. so what are some of the areas I think you had mentioned, like, you know, kind of like everybody's trying to stay between like six and eight miles. Where are some areas where like say if someone is acquiring a buck of land bank properties or and they want to use something like this, what would you suggest or what some what are some areas where you see that all of this together would be beneficial for maybe a developer or individual investors? Okay. Uh as realtors, we have a tendency to deal with clients that are only interested in a certain stretch from six mile to eight mile. Right. There are so many other areas that are in uh, East uh, Detroit, uh, East Side, Southwest Side, uh, Central Area, uh, along the Woodward Corridor, and what have you, 
that we have yet to invest in and what have you that are just as stable as those areas between six and eight. Okay. Right. On the east side, you have West Village, you have Morningside, uh, you have uh, in the uh, central area, you have Woodbridge, you have Corktown. I mean, it's not ex exactly um, uh, uh, inexpensive, <laughs> but <laughs> if you know anything about Corktown and Woodbridge, but it's going up. Yeah. But you have areas like uh, Oakman West, Oak, uh, Oak Park Boulevard West, Oak Park Boulevard East, Outer Drive East. Um, let's see, what else? Russell Woods, Aviation Subdivision over by Joy and Tireman, uh, west of uh, Wyoming to Schaefer. Uh, you have Myers, uh, which is the uh, Myers West Outer Drive, which is the Blackstone community. You have the Schaefer 7-8 area. You have the uh, San Bernardo Park area that's right off the lodge in seven mile to eight mile all the way up to um, uh, Southfield. Uh, right. You have the Outer Drive on the east side. You have the Riverside District. Um, you have Warren Rouge Park area what our clients basically ask for are areas within certain zip codes. They may be the 4821, the 235s, the 223s, and the 219s. But you have areas over LaSalle Gardens, Longfellow, um, um, what else? Uh, Minock Park. Um, what else? East English Village. All those areas are still NEZs. They still offer the same incentive, the uh, 15 years, uh, anywhere from uh, 18 to 35% off your taxes. And it's an incentive for you to buy within the city of Detroit. Then there are certain lending institutions that have programs specific for uh, the city of Detroit and people that want to buy within the city of Detroit. So like Liberty Bank and what have you. Those entities are going to be prominent in uh, the city of Detroit for some time. Uh, they've already established grants, uh, three cycles of grants. They've run out the first two cycles. They added another uh, 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 cycle uh, of grants. Uh, the um, Opportunity Resource Fund, which is a nonprofit, not even um, wanting um, you to be a certain credit uh, score, but at the same time, they just want to know if you're paying your bills on time mm -hmm. and you're going right. to call home ownership. So all those entities uh, packaged together and what have you could be a great incentive in, for you to invest and live and uh, buy a home within the city of Detroit. Reginald, if I may. So, oh, if, yeah. I, if I may. Go ahead. I, uh, I usually tell people, especially from out of town or what have you, uh, that are getting to know Detroit, Detroit is like a big wagon wheel and it all emanates from downtown. And as you look at it, downtown is where all the people, all the players are playing. You got four, three or four billionaires playing downtown. You got Penske, you got Illich, you got Chorus, and you got the Fords, right? So since everybody's downtown and that's where everybody wants to be, you also have five different uh, 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 streets that are coming out of downtown that go all over the city. You have Woodward, you got Gratiot, you got Jefferson, you got uh, Grand River and you got Michigan Avenue. So what I tell people, all these property, all these streets emanate from downtown and you got all the big boys playing downtown where the big money is. But 
a lot of our development is, is basically on one of those, on those areas. So I tell people to start downtown, get on one of these streets, drive where you can afford it, stop, buy everything around it and wait. Because eventually over time, if you look at it, uh, a lot of, a lot of those, a lot of our major development uh, that is coming, coming soon is going to, it's going to come off one of those arteries. Absolutely. So that's another option as well. Because the other thing I was I'm sorry, James. Go ahead. The other thing that I would suggest is that um, this uh, six to eight mile is saturated. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, there used to be a time when we would, um, uh, the employees would go to a high rise and what have you and go in that building and wouldn't come out to late, uh, start early and uh, come out late at night and what have you. But since of COVID, we're working from home for the most part. So it doesn't matter whether your um, home is next or a few miles away from your business. You can be relocated anywhere within the city of Detroit if you choose to be. So um, diversify. I mean, look at other areas. If you feel as though one area is more saturated than the other, and you've uh, been running up against multiple offers and highest and best and what have you, why not consider another area that's just as viable that has probably even more so going on the other side of town? And the only reason you know about this area is because you heard somebody talk about 48221 and 235 and 223 and 219. When you go to 224 and what have you, it's a whole different world. And the, the, I did a study in my own study where I've uh, looked at properties around the city of Detroit. And if you look at the two mile perimeter around the city of Detroit from six mile to eight mile, from uh, Mack to Jefferson or down by the river, uh, right. from the other side of Joy. Kim, while you while you're talking, can you go to slide ten on your thing so we can see the because it shows like a city map. So when you're talking, okay. people can kind of see a visual. Absolutely. Uh, this these are proposed areas where okay. there are homestead districts already, and proposed areas where is might be um, uh, reallotted. Um, if you look at the upper left-hand corner, you see areas where it's the Berg Lasher area, the, um, I can't think of the other area. Uh, then you have the concentration of, uh, NEZs up at the very top center. And then you have, if you look down, if you look down Grand River, which is about it inch and a half uh down and it's kind of angled you'll see grand river like gene stated if you look right. at the other end of this uh, uh wheel you see Gratiot, and then you see woodward coming up the middle and then you see jefferson along the riverfront and then you see michigan avenues uh springing out and what have you all those are uh thoroughfares that the nez is um around um, and probably within five to 10 miles of. Um, so there are more communities out there that we could be investing in that we could say, listen, you're losing out on these offers. 
why not consider another area where the um, residential district is just as good, the commercial district is just as good, and the um, um, uh, school district is just as good. The so other thing what it sounds like, hold on, Ken. So what it sounds like, and I have to say this for the um, for our audience, what it sounds like you're saying is, if one area is oversaturated and you're looking to buy or invest, and it's so much competition, just start looking at the entire map and Absolutely. look at where there's more opportunity for growth and and a, a bigger upside in some of these areas. Right, because a lot of people are thinking like, well, where is it hot right now versus to where the ball is going to be landing a year from now? Absolutely. And in essence, what you're doing is putting all your eggs in one basket. Right. Okay. Uh, you need to dis- uh, vers- diversify. If you look around the perimeter of this map and you go, say, two miles out, you see McNichols at the top. You see... Right. Evergreen, the telegraph, the five points up on the left hand. Wait, let me let me stop you right there too. So for our audience, McNichols is actually six mile because every all the out of town, all the out of towners be like, "What's up with eight mile?" or then seven mile. McNichols is technically six mile. So when Ken is saying six mile to eight mile, he's saying McNichols to eight mile. And here locally, anything east or west of Woodward is how we determine the east from the west side. So when you're looking at a map and you see East McNichols, technically that's the east side. So it's east six mile or west six mile. All right, Reggie, you just opened up a can of worms, guys. You know what? Oh, man. (laughs) All right. The debate is on now. Right. (laughs) Whether you call it six mile or you call it McNichols. Right, you know both, but at the same time, it's what you're accustomed to. Exactly, and um, six miles. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's just like it's just like Finkel. Who calls it Finkel? Hey, Five miles. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but uh, depending where I am and everything, you have to be fluid. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Saying, hey, that's just for Detroiters. Like over here. I'm like, say because I'm not from Detroit, and I call it McNichols. Exactly. And I've grown up calling it both, but at the same time, like I said, it depends on the audience. Mm-hmm. But if you look around the perimeter of this map, the two mile stretch, you will see where there is more diversity within that two mile perimeter around the city than in the inner uh, most parts of the city. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay you'll see that the neighborhoods are more stable in that two-mile perimeter than in the central part of that city. You will see that there's more commercial retail in that two-mile perimeter than it is the core of the city. You will see that there's more school districts and more uh, uh, schools and how people perceive of them within that two-mile perimeter of the city and not the core of the city. I got a question. So looking at this map right here, it looks like the west side has the majority of the vast majority of the NEZ uh, qualifications. Well, there's a reason for that as well. 
Okay. You have to look at the time of 1999 when the area that is mostly saturated with the NEZs was the most densely populated. Okay, if you look outside there, you have the sparsely uh, populated areas and the industrial areas within the city of Detroit where it wasn't uh, uh, viable to put the uh, NEZ. As right. time goes on, and that's the reason why the city council is reconsidering where the NEZs are allotted, that's why the reallocation is happening. Hmm because there's going to be further development down between uh, 75, well, both 75, 75 and 375. But obviously, as it relates to the uh, riverfront and what have you, and more development happening along uh, the um, uh, Aretha Franklin Amphitheater and what have you, that whole district down there, mm -hmm. where it used to be nothing but nightclubs and warehouses, those are being repurposed. So you're going right. to have NEZs down there for new development. Where in the areas where it's mostly saturated on this screen, where all the numbers are, that's mostly a, a residential area. Yeah, because I'm looking. So let me, in already, oh, here. that's the Homestead uh, 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 districts. Gotcha. So when I talk to people too, and they're talking about emerging areas or so where they have the most opportunity to buy, like, a bulk of lots or vacant lots. Mm -hmm. So I have a few people that actually reached out to me about, you see that Tyreman Warren area over there? Mm -hmm. And then on the east side, like that, Mac, um, Mac Gratchett, Van Dyke, um, and Mac Down to Kerchival, there's like huge chunks of just vacant lots um, connected, but they're all owned by different government entities. But... Absolutely. Even though they're not highlighted in the NEZ zone, there's still opportunities to develop there. And I, I think people are not looking that far ahead. Well, this Would you agree? Thing. If you look at the uh, Tyreman Warren area that you just talked about, that number 24 right. is the aviation district. Right. Mm -hmm. All right. So believe me, there's excellent housing stock in the aviation. Oh, aviation sub is lovely. Or so right. uh, to me, it was the predecessor to Oak Park and uh, Redford. Yeah. Right. Okay, because yeah. it's nothing but ranches and maybe uh, raised ranches over there. Mm -hmm. uh, you got their boulevards. Exactly. <clears throat> then you look at Southwest Detroit, which is right below that, Reggie, uh, the Tyreman, the Warren area that's uh, uh, leaning toward, going toward Southwest Detroit and uh, the river. Uh, right. Obviously, there's going to be more development there, but there's more homes there that are older, historic uh, ilk that um, you would be hard-pressed to find some um, um, vacant, contiguous land over there. Right. But at the same right. time, like Gene knows and what have you, there are areas like when we had gone over to the uh, uh, Emma's affair, uh, 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 mm -hmm. you know that there's vacant land over there because... I didn't know where we were going that day. Mm. <laughs> I was right. like, hey, I'm glad I know her because I know I ain't being set up. <laughs> right. <laughs> she did call it a hidden jewel, hidden, hidden gem. Oh, so, believe me. Right. It, it and was it was hidden. hidden. It was hidden. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. But then you go over to the Mac Gratiot area where the uh, new plant is being built. 
for um, uh, Chrysler. Mm-hmm. Right. Then you go over north uh, at the very top where the state fair is now going to be the home of the new Amazon plant. Okay. Right. Building. So you have development that's going to be spurred in northeast Detroit. And the areas that have always been considered the most uh, dilapidated. No, not dilapidated. Vicarious position, vicarious community <laughs> okay, <laughs> are going to undergo a, uh, a renaissance as well. Absolutely. Because what was existing over there prior is not going to be allowed for too much longer because everyone is planting their flag in the ground uh, or they're staking the ground to do new development. Yeah, it's the same for that um, Van Dyke 94 area. You know, they just um, transformed Kettering. Exactly. And I can't remember what entity took its place, but at the same time, uh, there's uh, that whole corridor down Van Dyke uh, in Mount Elliott. Oh, that's going to undergo a change like nobody's business. And it's going to be rapid. That's the uh, Dakota Automotive. Okay, exactly. It's a supplier of automotive supplies. Mm-hmm. It's gonna go undergo oh. rapid uh, um, uh, uh, change. All right. So let's um let's did, let's wrap this up for today because we got we want to get you guys back on again, and then we also want to tell people how to contact you. Um, but a quick mention too. So Ken and Eugene, and I'm I'm assisting as well. There's an urban um mastermind um, group that's being put together to educate the consumer as well as real estate professionals. Um, So look out for anything that they're posting on Facebook, Instagram, any social media platforms. Gene is actually on LinkedIn. So I'm on LinkedIn (laughs) as well. I am too. um, I am as well. uh, (laughs) Ken, can you tell the people how to reach you? Yeah, sure. Uh, my phone number is 313-819-7065. Uh, my website is csworealestate.com. Um, you can also reach me on Facebook at csw uh, slash Candler Scott and Wallace Real Estate on uh, Facebook. Um, you can catch me on LinkedIn. Um, I absolutely hate Twitter, so you're not going to catch me there. <laughs> or, or, or I won't catch you there. <laughs> right but uh you can catch me on instagram linkedin and facebook all right and gene what's how does people how will people contact you so i i put some things in the chat so i am uh email kelly group k-e-l-l-e-y g-r-o-u-p the number 17 at gmail.com uh my phone number 248-506-1257 if i don't answer just keep calling i'll get to you soon enough I do have a website, <laughs> www.realestateone.com backslash G-K-E-L-L-E-Y. And I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. Don't remember all the, just look, just look for my name. I'm real simple. I don't have any, any special, you know, code names. It's my first, my last name. And you'll find me on either Instagram or uh, 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 LinkedIn or, or any of those places. So, but yeah, best, best to call me or email me. All right, sounds good. All right, so <laughs> better you to do your thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like us, 
please subscribe YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Sasari. There's something about real estate. Um, that's all. What I missed. That's <laughs> it. Thank you all for the opportunity. I will. Uh, uh, thank last, you for coming. Last piece. Uh, just like uh, Ken said, we have uh, our first urban uh, uh, urban education series. The first one is November 10th, Wednesday. It's going to be a Zoom call. Uh, uh, presentation. I'll be doing a presentation on how to write the land bank offers and t- teaching realtors how, uh, more about the land bank. So that'll be Wednesday, November 10th at six o'clock. Is Where that is it? Yeah. Zoom? It'll be a Zoom. Uh, we're, we'll have that link out to folks as when, when it's created. Yes. Okay. And we'll, we'll promote it on our, yeah, we'll promote it on our, um on this platform as well okay. so that it gets out um, and if for, and for realtors, we'll make sure it gets out to all the realtors as well. Now, is this going to be open to the general public? Uh, what I'm talking about? Yeah. If we want, yeah. If it's a yes, if we want it to be yes, okay. right. It's going to be it's going to be heavily realtor based because we want to. We're trying to do education for the realtors, but anybody can jump on. Uh, but okay. we, we may have to tra- we may have to translate based on the audience because we at this point we don't care who learns this stuff. The more we get this out there, the better. And so as we start with the questions and everything like that, my my our job is to answer the questions, and then that may generate more questions. So as long right. as the information is out there, that's what we're going to do. Yeah. Jane, would you mind throwing that info on the chat? The uh, urban. Will you put your Will you put your number? Yeah, I don't think it's out yet. He said the link isn't. Well, no, when they get it. Yeah, I didn't ask for the link. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> but Reggie, you're gonna know about it though. You're gonna know and be. Yeah, able to yep. I'll make sure. I'll make sure our audience. Yeah, our audience will get it. Um, just make sure you you like and subscribe so you can get the alert. <laughs> My and man. it's the Urban Education Series is going to be November 10th. And, uh, we'll, yeah, Mastermind. And oh, we'll, wow. um, is at 6 p.m. And uh, we'll put out the link in, in any of the promotional materials here in the next day or so. I'm setting it up now. <laughs> All right. Sounds great. Appreciate y'all. All right. All right. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye.